Hi, my name is Andrea Jansen, and I am on a mission to help people be ambitious at work every single day. That means you're fulfilled, you're productive, and you're contributing to your company. I'm a certified executive coach that has an MBA, a diversity consultant, a Forbes contributor, a business leader, a wife, and a mother of three. This podcast is about tackling hard topics like the gender gap in the workplace. It's about asking the questions that everybody's thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. Each episode is like the sweet spot between motivation and tactical strategies to get you ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. This is where we learn, grow, and create opportunities. Welcome to the Ambition Theory Podcast. This week, I'm sharing a rebroadcast from December of 2019 with Don Bureau, the president and CEO of Nova Scotia Community College. Don successfully created a gender-balanced leadership team by reframing one simple question. Instead of asking the candidates, do you have what it takes to be a leader? He asked them, what kind of leader do you want to be? He also talked about another powerful reframe, which is looking at your strengths as the things that excite you instead of the things that you are good at. Imagine what would happen if you built a career around things that got you excited every single day. What would be possible for you and the people around you? I am so excited to share Don's wisdom with you today. So hi, Don. Thank you so much for coming on the Diversity at Work podcast. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So I would love it if you could dive in and introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do. Sure. So uh, uh, my name is Don. I have the absolute honor of being the president of the Nova Scotia Community College. It's a role I've had now for almost nine years. And uh, I think I have the coolest job in the province. So how come? Well, I get to help people transform their lives, quite frankly. I have always been a big believer in the power of post-secondary education to be a transformational power. And uh, I get to see that every day where people, uh, regardless of quite frankly their age, we have people who are 18 and people who are 80 coming to study at this college um, from, from quite diverse backgrounds. And through the power of learning, they're able to quite frankly design a new life for themselves. And that doesn't get old. That's just a wonderful uh, place to be. I love it that you kind of see that as the first thing, is the best thing about your job, is bringing mm. these diverse people together. Right. So tell me about some of the magic that happens in yeah. the college with well, that. Well, I guess it really begins with our basic philosophy of education, that you know, it's, we, we, we less believe that uh, there's, a, there's a framework or a construct that kind of defines exactly what a particular occupation uh, requires in terms of a skill set. Um, if the economy is going to continue to be nimble and to change and to, to be robust, the human capital, the, the human talent input into that economy has to also be nimble and flexible and represent change and diversity. So what the college tries to do, and I think we do a pretty good job at it, is to identify what does this diverse, ever-changing economy need and to provide the training to prepare people to be successful in that economy. Cool. Yeah. And so is your staff as diverse as your students? Well, that, to that that's a great question. So we, we have about 2,000 staff here at the college. And, 
And at, how many students do you at, have? At any one time, we could have between twenty to 25,000 students studying in some type of program. Now, that could be a, an advanced diploma or it could be an evening class on um, culinary arts. So any, everything in between. And while our workforce is more diverse than it once was, I still think that we need to continue to work hard to make sure that the college represents the students that we have the honor of teaching and helping to learn, but also just the, the, the fantastic increase in diversity that we're seeing in our communities. And if we're going to be a community college to its full potential, we need to represent the communities that we serve. So it kind of sounds like you see this big opportunity, like the, the diversity is there in the student population. Correct, yes. It's kind of showing up a little bit in the staff, but right. you see you see an opportunity to take it to the next level. There's no doubt about it. And a big, and a big part of that is to have more people see themselves in these kinds of wonderful careers that the economy right now is demanding. And it's odd, I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young women and, and they say that um, I'm thinking about going into a non-traditional occupation or a job and, and, um, and trades is a big one, of course, where right now we're not seeing uh, a lot of women in the trades, but more going into it. But I recently had a conversation with a young woman and she said, um, it's not a non-traditional role at all. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, my grandmother was a welder during the World War. And at that time, um, the diversity in the workforce where everyone had to be all hands on deck, um, we had a number of women pursuing non-traditional trades uh, during World War II. So in her mind, it was kind of reclaiming space that her family occupied. And she was very proud of that, that her, her grandmother, in fact, both her grandmothers, both her grandmothers were involved in in trade during the war. So it's an interesting kind of way to look at it. That is really cool, especially because I know, I talk about gender a lot, so I yeah. know that lack of role models is a thing. Like you don't see other people doing it. Right. So that's cool that she literally just had to look at her own family yes. and could see those role models in her history. And that kind of shifted that mindset to being like this thing that we say as a society that trades is a male dominated right. profession. But for her, it, was, it wasn't that way, and it was just because of her family and looking back in the history, and I think that's really cool. It really is, and you use the great term of role model. Um, it, it's, it's proven. You're absolutely right. If, if, if we have um, community leaders or family leaders who are kind of um, um, blazing the trail, they're, they're, they're establishing what normal looks like, um, I think if we continue to recognize the value that um, I use the term to democratize education. I think you've heard me use that term that term before. I think we need to democratize leadership. I think we need to democratize education. And what that means, and, and again, I, I love the question that you and I have talked about before, Andrea, is that it's that question of all too often in, in history, um, people have been asked the wrong question. And that wrong question traditionally has been, do you have what it takes to do a particular role or to be a certain kind of leader or to be an entrepreneur. And my research and our, our work tells us that the right question to ask is what type of leader, what type of, of employee, what type of entrepreneur do you want to be? And that simple reframing of that question in a certain way gives people permission to think beyond the traditional boundaries that we've established as a society. I think it's very liberating. And I think as a society, we need to allow that question to be asked and reframed more. I 100% agree. And that is actually why the reason I invited you to come on the podcast. So we first met 
I think a couple months ago at a women's conference and you were on stage talking about your own experience in right. transforming your own leadership team. And when you said that, I wrote it down. I was like, other people need to hear this. Oh, I appreciate because that. Because it's so simple, yeah. but it is so powerful. And our brain doesn't automatically go there. Right. So I would love it if you could kind of take us back to that time where you had that realization that you needed to be asking a different question. Yeah, so... You know, for me, it was a very personal experience. Um, I shared that day when we first met a very personal situation in my family where I had with my siblings to make a very difficult decision with our aging parents. And uh, like a lot of families now with aging parents, my parents were in their late 80s. Um, my mother, unfortunately, was suffering from Alzheimer's and we had to move my parents into a nursing home. And something very profound happened that first night when my parents were in their nursing home. And this is what happened. Um, during the first evening when my parents were in the nursing home, I agreed to stay with them and have their first meal in the nursing home in a large common dining room. And during supper, my, my at that time, 88-year-old father um, recognized somebody else in the audience, somebody else in the room who had, he had recognized from a previous time in his life. To make a long story short, um, after supper, we went over and introduced ourselves to this other resident. And um, it turns out that this other resident was a doctor, a retired doctor, and um, who had um, actually treated my father a number of years before that. And in fact, it was many, many years because this retired doctor, she was 105 years old. And I think in that um, represents an incredible, incredible learning. One, her age, and she was as sharp as a tack. But secondly, the fact that she became a physician, a, a doctor, um, 70 years ago, in a very male-dominant um, uh, profession. She talked to me that night about what it was like to become a doctor back then. And it was her dean of medicine, actually, who changed the question. The question of, at that time, do you have what it takes to be a doctor? In the 1930s, it was, you had to be a male. He reframed the question of what type of doctor do you want to be? And he democratized the education and the profession of medicine for women. And that that made me think about how could we use that lesson from 75 years ago today to help democratize professions and writ large. So that was the story that I shared. And it's been a, a bit of a life changer for me. Totally. And you used that question to reframe your own leadership team. I have, right? exactly. So tell me, I think it was 10 years ago, you looked around at your leadership yeah. team and you're like, mm. we're very similar. Well, we did, you know, in, in a trade school, if you will, a traditional trade school, which for decades, again, has been male dominated. Um, in fact, when I first came to the college, I did a bit of an audit at the campus. I did a simple audit of male versus female washrooms. And, and in that building, there were just so many more male washrooms because that was kind of the environment that we expected more males to come to an institution like ours. And was this just an audit, like just on a piece of paper? Or it, did you do a formal it audit? It literally was. I talked to the building manager and I said, I need you to count the number of washrooms that we had dedicated for men and women. It was a very obvious kind of indicator mm -hmm. that we hadn't kind of transitioned the way that we thought in terms of how diverse our student body could be. So... I looked at our leadership team at the college, especially the executive team. And um, so I have an executive team comprised of myself and vice presidents. And I thought that it was an important message to be 
to be much more, if you will, kind of broad in the view of what does great leadership look like. And it was not, it was, it was, it wasn't gender specific. It was, it was a wide open, it was kind of agnostic and obviously in terms of gender, which, which we, we all know is to be true. And because of that, we became much more um, um, open to ensuring that we had the best leaders in the best places at the right time. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just blessed now with a wonderful leadership team um, that is very, very diverse, and it makes us a better college. And so how did you do that? Like, yeah. so it just, it started with, you know yeah. what, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> very basic, looking at the numbers, whatever yeah. numbers you go get your hands on, and when you started, it was like, let's just start with counting mm-hmm. the bathrooms. Well, and I, then it, mm-hmm. it just kind of like evolved to the next thing, and now you're kind of seen as this champion of diversity and you're changing the college and you right. are influencing employers and it's become so much bigger than, yeah. and I just want to understand that what happened from like, I'm just curious about the bathrooms to where you are today. <laughs> well, I think a big part of that is very personal for me on my leadership journey. You know, I, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been the president of NSCT for nine years and, um, kind of got to follow my uh, path here. So, so, when I first became president, Andrea, I, I suffered greatly from what I would call the imposter's syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I had in my mind what an ideal leader looked like. And in my mind, I wasn't it. So I was fearful for a while that people would kind of figure this out, that there was a bit of a fraud in terms of um, the leader of NSCC, not fraud in terms of doing something illegal, but fraud in terms of, is that what we are expecting a leader to be? And and through the work with a with an executive coach, I really began to be comfortable with a key word of, of vulnerability. I began to really understand that a great team is a team that uh, is comprised of, of people who are very, very different than I am. And because of people who are very, very different than I am, I allowed myself to begin to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am, people who at times because of the situation, I may be working for them. So you, you, you leave the positional leadership mindset and you move into situational mindset, situational leadership mindset. I wanted, I wanted to have people around me who could challenge me. And as they became more comfortable with that personal leadership transition of adopting a more vulnerable kind of approach, more authentic, more genuine, then the diversity kind of um, imperative actually became almost an unconscious journey. Because if we truly were going to be a great organization, I was gonna surround myself with people who are better than I am, I had to be wide open in terms of the people that we would that we would attract. So is it that you had to just widen <clears throat> the pool of recruiting or where you traditionally looked for people or how did you yeah. find those people? <clears throat> well, that certainly was part of it, you know. And again, in education, we've traditionally had a very kind of pro, um, a, a very kind of forecasted kind of model for leadership. You would do position A, then you would do position B, then you would do position C. We had to break that model. We had to ask ourselves, who could we um, bring to the to NSCC to be leaders that would bring the best of what um, the CUNUs had to offer in terms of leadership? So it was uh, casting a wider net, if you will, in terms of broadening that. It was allowing ourselves to be much more vulnerable as an organization, to allow ourselves to be open to different points of views and different ways of doing business. And it was also allowing us to to have our leaders see themselves in different roles. 
So we had people who traditionally would have been going on one leadership track, but through opportunities say, how about trying a different piece of work and being open to that learning, that development in a different, in a different way. So it's like even just diversifying your experience for as an individual, it became part of the culture, part of the DNA. That's correct. Absolutely. Exactly. Cool. So you talked about what motivated you to take that on. But why is this so important to you? Because you are living and breathing. And like when I first met you, I'm like, this guy breathes <laughs> diversity. He breathes abundance. He is all about opportunity and bringing out the best in everybody. Um, why is this so important to you? I think for, for me, it really begins with a love of place. I, I absolutely feel so fortunate and I adore, I adore the province of Nova Scotia. I, I think we are blessed to live in a province that's not perfect, we're far from it. But if you look at the the, the assets that we have, both physical and, and human assets that we have in the province of Nova Scotia, I think that we are positioned so well to compete on the world stage as we are moving into this thing called the fourth industrial revolution. So our economy is fundamentally changing now. And in my mind, if we're going to continue to to have economic and social prosperity in the province of Nova Scotia, we need that to be shared collectively. We, we need to make sure that we have a collective impact in the province. In order to have a collective impact, you have to have all people involved in that kind of uh, journey. So at the end of the day, I just fundamentally believe that if we have... Um, uh, a DNA or a philosophy where we can have more people participating in the creation of a province that's a, that's a very different province going forward, everyone is better off. So I, so I just I just fundamentally believe in that at the, at the core of who, of who I am. And I also recognize and appreciate that that you know the, the, the human kind of psyche is a fabulous and interesting kind of mystery to me. And if we could help people unlock and unleash kind of this inner spirit of innovation and entrepreneurship and not and not kind of push it down or extinguish it, then again, we'll be a better a better province. So for me, um, I, I love what I do because it allows people to recognize and reach their potential. And that potential is different for everybody. And then together we all we all benefit. It's like it's like a. It's, it's like a, a quilt. It's like a mosaic. And through, through such diversity um, and inclusion, which I think is an important part of this, because I think diversity is kind of what we want to achieve. Inclusion is how we're going to do it. And if we can be more mindful of being more inclusive, then that quilt becomes a more beautiful mosaic of the province of Nova Scotia. I love that. I, I love that what you just said, because mm-hmm. it's really about being, something, being a part of something larger than yourself. And I think sometimes people, when you think about the diversity strategy, it's like an us versus them. It's like, I need to go into protection mode. But what you just said, it's really about everybody winning and use words like prosperity. And that's what gets me excited and gets me feel energy towards this and want to be a part of it. Because it's really uh, giving everybody permission to be part of something larger than themselves. And that is motivating and that's inspiring for people it really is and and you know you 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 talk about the color i talk about the collective but it does begin one person at a time and um that great question that i've i've reframed and i think there's another piece of that i 
I read a book a number of years ago by a guy named Marcus Buckingham, and he, re he redefined for me the definition of a strength. You know, traditionally, I thought a strength was defined as something that you are good at. Marcus disagrees with that. He says a strength is not necessarily something you're good at, but it's something that gets you jazzed. It gets you excited. It, it strengthens you. And a weakness is not something that you're necessarily bad at, but it, it, it's an activity that weakens you, it depletes you, it kind of drains you. And when I think of people who are really inspiring, the people that I really want to kind of look to for, for hope and, and inspiration, I think it's those people who are playing to their strengths. It's people who are really understanding what gives me life, what gets me really excited, and how do I create an environment in which I do that more than not? But here's the thing. As leaders of organizations, I think it's our responsibility to help build environments that enable that kind of journey. So I would say that, um, that, that leadership, diverse leadership, recognizes the diversity of people who want to play to their strengths in different ways. And, and define strengths in a different format. So it's not about men versus women or racial identity. It's Absolute really fact. about, I'm really good at this thing, and yeah. this thing brings me joy, whether that's working with my hands or um, getting in the details, managing projects, like figuring out what the thing is that brings right. me joy, and then the great leader like brings that out and enables the place for the person to lean into that and show up and do more of that. Is you that what it. you You're mean? absolutely right. If, if we create a work environments that were based on authentic conversations with members of that organization that allowed people to be able to play to their strengths, defined as things that get you really jazzed and excited and inspired. And look, it's called work for a reason. You mm -hmm. can't do that every single day. But right now, statistics tell us that less than 20% of the world's population go to a job every day that plays to their strengths defined as things that really really are meaningful that get me jazzed imagine if we could turn that dial and that's what nova scotia i think is just beginning to do we ask that question differently to say given all the diversity that we have how do we tap into a person's kind of natural assets what gets you naturally jazzed and excited and then go from 20% to 30% of your week or 40% of your week, I guarantee you the productivity scale will go up. Like 100%. And it's funny, I'm going to read this book and I'll put yeah. it in the show notes. But what I call what you just described, I call it ambition. And it's what drives your ambition. Absolutely. It's like figure out what it is. Because the definition of ambition is the desire to achieve something that right. typically requires determination and hard right. work. And right. when you don't know what the something is, the hard work's not worth it. So then that's where you get the 80% of people who are showing up at work and have no idea what they're striving for right. and they're not engaged. So it's it's a similar concept, but I'm going to definitely check out Marcus's book. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, I, I love that way, the way you described it. So um, so yeah, so so I think it, uh, it all kind of falls under this rubric of diversity. Because mm -hmm. again, um, if we do not allow people to self-define their strength, again, what gets you jazzed, what gets you excited, then we're not a diverse environment. And and therefore, we're going to lack uh, in terms of productivity and output. So yeah. this is exciting because you are in charge of the community college in our province. Right. 
and it's big. Yes. And all of these young people, well, actually, people of all ages get to come here, and really, you get to kind of help them discover what their strength is, get some formal training in it, and then you, I know you work with a lot of employers as well, and like right. open the door for them to go out and do those jobs that they're going to feel fulfilled, they're going to be right. playing on their strengths. So tell me what it looks like for someone coming in, and, and right. how do you create that? Well, we, we begin by an educational philosophy that's rooted in something that we call portfolio learning. And again, I, I think some of your listeners may quickly go, like I did when I first heard the term, that portfolio learning must be some kind of physical product. You would produce a binder, and that binder would have all of your learning demonstrated in it. But that's only a small part of it. When, when people enter a portfolio learning environment, is it's much about the product um, that's important, but it's also about the philosophy, the practice, um, the, the, the kind of the, uh, the understanding of self. So for us, portfolio learning is really creating a sense of self, understanding who you are, understanding the strengths and weaknesses that we defined it, then deciding, okay, if that's who I am, then where do I want to go? What's my, what's my personal and, and work kind of vision? And how do I bridge that gap? Because when we talk to employers, as important as those hard skills are, and they're getting great hard skills at NSCC, our faculty, I would say, are some of the best in the world. Um, but what, what our faculty know and what employers are telling us is that those hard skills are important, but a person must have that strong sense of who they are. They must have a sense of inquiry, a sense of engagement, a sense of civil kind of responsibility. And that's what we're trying to really kind of magnify and blossom when students are at the Nova Scotia Community College. That is really cool because I didn't learn that about myself till right. I was already in my 30s. Right. So this is really exciting for yeah. the next generation. Yeah. So I'm really curious because you're talking about, we're talking about diversity and really kind of focusing on yourself and like, what am I interested in? What's going to light my fire? What's going to motivate me? And kind of going in those career directions. But I'm really curious because back when I was in school trying to figure out post-secondary, yeah. there was, I feel like it wasn't like that. It wasn't like explore, Andrea, be whatever you want to be. Right. It was, there was certain things that were expected of me and I was kind of channeled into certain streams. Right. Right. So I'm curious how that shows up today. Well, again, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't think that's completely extinguished. I still think we have... Um, systems and ways of thinking that um, may direct people in a certain direction, I think, based on the wrong indicators. Again, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a CPA. I'm a chartered professional accountant. So why did I become a CA? Because technically, that was a strength because, quote unquote, I was good at it because I got the highest marks in accounting. Oof, I'm, I'm not that um, jazzed by accounting. <laughs> and, and I think it's a wonder... I just... That didn't float my boat, okay? So um, I, I too wish there was a time in which I was asked those questions about what do you really, what difference do you want to make in, in the world? And there's a great kind of paradigm out there where a lot of people are really focused on resume virtues. And, and this, I, again, this is from a, a great author, um, and he talks about this notion that we spend most of our life building a resume. What's the job? What's the experience? What's the job title? 
And then he says, he said, it's a book called Road to Character. And he says, in this book, Road to Character, he says, he says, there's a time in everyone's life when we pivot from resume, virtue, resume virtues to eulogy virtues. Bit dark, but he says, okay, you pivot from what does your resume build? What's that all about? Versus what impact do you want to be making on the world? What difference do you want to make on society? What do you want to be remembered for? I argue, imagine if we could move that pivot to a younger age. Amazing. Imagine if we could move that pivot from a 50-year-old going through a midlife crisis to a 25-year-old who's saying, because I think it's age, it's age neutral. I think you can have that kind of insight when you're 25 or 20 years old. And I think education has a major role to play to help people do that pivot sooner than later. Now, is it important to have a resume? Absolutely. Is it important to, to work your way up the quote ladder? Absolutely. But imagine, imagine if we had people doing that with a lens of what difference do I want to make in the world connected to what are my natural talents and strengths. It's great because when you're doing that entry-level job and sometimes it's not always fun you're not you're kind of doing the grunt work you're learning you're proving yourself but if you could see that big vision and recognize that this is the the stepping stone whereas i think where people get stuck it's like they're like is this all there is to life and they're then they're not engaged whereas if you can see the bigger picture it's like this is my stepping home when i master this when i get good at that that's going to open the door for that and be open and even be open to learning and changing the past. I think that's really powerful and that's really exciting. That excites me. Well, it's really, it's exciting. It's powerful. And you know what? It's fun. Like it's absolutely a joy to be in a position of working with 2000 incredible, incredible individuals who are all focused on helping our students be successful Um, to, to recognize that, that kind of change, that kind of transformation can, can, can happen. And I, look, I, I am just, I, I'm just so inspired by our, our youth, uh, our, the, 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 the folks coming behind me in terms of that next generation of, of leadership in this province, um, we're in great hands. And, and they, they have this stuff kind of figured out in, in many ways. We need to create education systems that kind of allow that to blossom and and to develop. So I want to actually bring this question up about this stereotype that people have older, the older generation has about millennials and young people in the workforce is that they are entitled, they want to feel all the things. And you're kind of saying that that's actually a good thing. So how do we kind of bridge the gap? Because what you said before, it's like people are having this realization, they're making the shift at age 50 to from building the resume to building the eulogy. So they're so some of the managers kind of if they haven't reached that point yet, may not understand these values that you're teaching your students about leaning into their strength, doing the things that light their fire and being searching and wanting to do more, which I think that's going to deliver more productivity to a company anyways. But if the manager doesn't get that and can't, doesn't under, hasn't reached that tipping point yet, how do we deal with that in the workplace? Boy, that, that's a great question. And I wish I had a great answer. Um, I, I think you do that the way you eat an elephant kind of one, one at a time, one bite at a time. To be honest, I am seeing more employers recognizing that in order to look, if, if, if we look at some of the norms that are ha- that have, that we could have relied on for decades and decades and decades in business, 
more and more people are recognizing those norms no longer apply. You know, when you and I grew up, we probably, our parents bought their appliances at Sears and we used uh, cameras that Kodak would develop for us in the pictures, thinking that those companies would be there forever. They're gone. They're absolutely gone. So I, as a middle-aged, um, on the other side of middle age, uh, a 50-year-old individual, I'm recognizing that in order to be successful as a college, we need to break some of the norms of doing business because the generation of our employee um, is very different. So I'm, I'm, I'm also um, hopeful and excited that the, the managers of tomorrow are recognizing that not only does diversity require um, a, a broadening of thought, it requires a broadening of the way that we do business. And how, how do we do that? You know, I, I, I often talk about organizations are a combination of structure and soul. So most leaders are focusing on the structure of an organization, um, buildings, um, procedures, making sure that quality is there. Um, but as important as that as a leader is to create the soul of an organization. And I think the soul of an organization represented by culture is recognizing that in order to to have have corporate success, you must allow for individual success to happen. And for individual success to happen, we need to be much more adaptive, much more adaptable, and much more appreciative of different ways of getting work done. And if we could get our heads wrapped around that, we're going to maximize and leverage this incredible generation that's coming up. So it's like us. looking at the outcome and recognizing that, like you may be able to, like you have three employees, they could deliver that outcome in different ways. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Exactly. And the economy is demanding that. I mentioned earlier the fourth industrial revolution. You know, we, we've, we've had three previous ones. We had one that was really defined by steam back in the 1700s, and then electricity defined the second industrial revolution in the 1800s, and we brought in assembly lines, and we brought in manufacturing enterprises. The third industrial revolution started about 50 years ago when we tapped into computers. And, and now we have this intersection now of big data and, internet and analytics and robotics and automation. And all of those things coming together create the ability to be more nimble, more flexible, and more responsive. We need to allow our human capital to be more responsive, more flexible, and more nimble. And I think we're turning a corner on that. I think you're right, and I think it's really exciting that this pipeline of students are coming through your school and entering the workplace with, like, these new ideas, new ways mm. of doing things, and I think, like, that curiosity and that idea of leaning into your strengths and contributing and being open to doing things differently, mm. it's exciting, it's, yeah. but I also am really curious about gender stereotypes, because mm -hmm. that's something that I'm really interested in learning about and I think kind of for younger people they're not the stereotypes may not be as strong as when I was in school mm -hmm. but I know in trades I think we've seen progress in other areas whereas in the trades it's not changing that much mm -hmm. so I think it's about mm -hmm. less than five percent of people in the, that work in the trades in Canada are women yeah. so I'm wondering what's happening at the student level and is there something a barrier that people are like, I, I can't see myself or like what what's happening? Well, I, I look, first of all, you're, you're spot on. Like your observations, I think, are, are spot on. So let's let's kind of unpack this for a moment. So first of all, um, you know, the, the, the trades have traditionally, as we know, been male dominated. I did talk earlier about during 
the, the, the world wars, we had to have more diversity, but I think some of that was extinguished in the years between then and, uh, and now. So it starts, I think, beginning with a culture shift in some of those traditional in industries where <clears throat> um, the technology now is requiring a different skill set. Um, at one time, a certain level of physical strength was required to be successful, and perhaps that led to more of a male-dominated um, uh, profession. But the world in now is, is, is so different in terms of the types of technology that's being used, the kinds of um, machinery that's being used. So I think just from a physical point of view, it's much more conducive to a more diverse workforce. So that's, that's, that's one. I think the mindset, I think, again, traditionally for the wrong reasons, it was felt that only men could be successful in those occupations. And we had a certain generation that's kind of moving through the system right now with that belief. And certainly that's not the belief that I find with, with younger or more middle-aged people have. And then the last piece of it is, you, you, you mentioned it earlier, we need young women to recognize the, the wonderful careers that can be had in a, in a trade. Um, those are professions that can have um, a great impact on society. If you think about how we live our lives every single day, our lives are made healthier, um, more robust, um, they are made more exciting with the direct work that people who are such craftspeople, they're such skilled people who make our built environment such a wonderful place to live in. So we need to do a, a better job early in the early years of exploration, of allowing people to explore and to see themselves in these potential career offerings that they traditionally did not see themselves in. Can I share a story with you? Yeah, please so do. So I was really getting curious about trades because I do not know a lot about it. I do have been working with some construction companies and I got really curious. So I went to the Skills Canada exhibition when it was here in Halifax yep. and I met some welders and I just, I had these expectations in my mind about what it would be like to be a female welder. Yeah. And so I asked them and they actually let, they had a I could try welding. It right. was a lot of fun. And I asked them, and it's so interesting what I heard, because I expected to hear horror stories, yeah. but it was, they were the happiest women. <laughs> they kept going on and on about how amazing their jobs were. Mm. But this was the main, the most shocking thing for me. So this one woman, she had been a welder for 12 years, and I asked her, how did you get into it? I'm like, I'm, I'm really curious. And she said she started her career in early childhood education, which is a very female-dominated, stereotypical right. career, and traditionally not paid as well right. as a welder would. And she was a single mom, and it wasn't working for her financially to stay in that ECE field. So she decided, she said, I think she said it was a year. I think she came here. Okay. Um, she did the program, and she double, tripled sure. her income within not very long right. at the period right. and she just seemed so confident she seemed so happy right. she seemed like she was in the right place and was an advocate for opening the doors for other people and it was just it was not what i expected yeah. and i think it's really interesting that she, she went down the road of the traditional path she never thought of it until it was like oh my goodness i need to provide for my family right and this right. is the way that i can do it yeah. and i think people don't realize that 
it's a really good job. Well, that look, that that's a great story, and it is a great job. Now, look, let's not fool ourselves. There is still a traditional way of thinking in certain industries, and women face a hard time breaking into that. <clears throat> and I think as a college, as a society, we have a responsibility to say that's not on. That, that's, that's just not on to do that. And what's going to happen eventually is those those very poor practices are going to, from an economic point of view, they won't attract the talent and they're going to have to change their culture or close. So, um, but that story that you shared, I hear that quite often. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great narrative that we should be sharing with, with more young people who, are, who, for whatever reason, think that their career paths are quite narrow. And quite frankly, they're not. They're, there's an opportunity for people to, to pursue career paths that perhaps they never thought of before. And what's very exciting here in, in Atlantic Canada now is, is that we're really rediscovering the ocean economy. And the ocean economy is, is so diverse and there's so many opportunities for us to allow our young people to pursue wonderful careers in a, in a, in a natural asset that, that will create great wealth, I think, for Atlantic Canada. So I'm really curious about how you even plant those ideas. Because some mm. things like, oh, oceans, if you're, right. how do you know what you could even <clears throat> do? Yeah. So you, you do it by by communicating with young people. You know, we, we have a number of our staff who go into public schools and share stories. Um, I don't think it's difficult. I think it's a matter of people creating the opportunity for that exposure to happen. And we see all the time students doing tours of our, young people doing tours of our campuses. And you hear from parents of a student going home that night in grade nine because they were exposed to a profession that maybe they have not seen in their life and being totally transformed. And that creates the journey that they, so for us, um, we can't allow people to not have that thought process to only occur in grade 12. It has to happen at a much earlier age. And I've seen great change in our public school system to expose um, our youth to a wider variety of occupations. Yeah. So I'm really curious what industry is asking from you mm -hmm. for, like, what are the things that they want? Yeah, so I, I and as I mentioned, it's, it's an interesting combination between what what people are calling hard skills and soft skills. So the, the, the cycle of change in terms of, of the hard skills that are required, that, that's quite rapid. You know, we, we, we will train people in a certain way of engineering or nursing or a carpentry. And that particular hard skill could become um, outdated within six months or 18 months because that cycle is so fast now. But there's an expectation that they have a core set of hard skills. But what we're hearing more and more and more are the soft skills. Being able to um, um, communicate in a very clear way. Being able to appreciate the importance of occupational health and safety. Being enterprising, entrepreneurial, and innovative. Having a passion for what you're doing. So that's the feedback that we're getting from... It's about the learning, right? Like the company will teach them right. how to do the job. And if they come with a baseline, it's like, we'll take the baseline, that's we'll a, that's, train you and get you ready. That's exactly but right. But if you have this growth mindset, if you're open to learning, if you have a good attitude, yeah. that's really what they need. Well, you just nailed it. I think you used some key words. One is attitude. And that attitude that's very, very, again, that's, that's, a, that's a positive, helpful, 
uh, growth oriented attitude that's that's very important but you nailed it you, you use a term of, of learning and and what what employers are saying to us is that students have to recognize that learning really only begins in many ways when they start their jobs and employers are saying that we want we want our employees to continuously learn through their entire career so it's incumbent upon us as a post-secondary institution to create that kind of muscle that people have that I'm going to be learning the rest of my life. And a lot of that is informal, self-directed, and my own responsibility. And that's, that's, that's what employers are, are, are saying is the ideal kind of employee. Lifelong learners who are responsible for partially some of their own learning. That's cool. So I'm really curious what you're asking employers to do. So you're, you've kind of changed the culture of education. You're mm. equipping these people with these skills to lead into their strength, learn, like all these amazing things. So what is your expectation of employers? Because you're sending them off and I'm sure you want them to thrive and mm. contribute and stay at these organizations. So what mm. kind of are you asking these organizations to do? Mm. You're kind of, because it sounds like you're stepping up to the plate <clears> and <throat> delivering these graduates. Right. What are you asking them to do? Well, I got to say the employers are stepping up to the plate too. So there's been a big push in recent years around a topic of experiential learning or work integrated learning. It's all under the title of being partners. How do we partner with not only industry, but government? Government has a big role to play, and our government has done an excellent job of creating programs and incentives to encourage um, students to stay in Nova Scotia to work and employers to hire that student and help them grow and develop. So in a very simple way, we want industry, and they are, uh, to be true partners during this, this journey of learning. So what does that look like? Um, traditionally, we would have um, industry doing co-ops and work terms and other work experiential learning opportunities, predominantly at the end of an individual's course or program. But what's happening now is industry is much more open to having um, students work with them throughout their entire study period. So you can have students being connected to industry now in the first couple of months of their study, and that builds a relationship. So that relationship now doesn't last just for six weeks at the end, it lasts for two years or three years. And that was an ask that we made to industry, and they've been very great to respond for that. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm quite proud and quite appreciative of the relationship that we have with industry, who quite frankly are stepping up to help out with this. That's really cool. And it just yeah. I love that you... You've asked that. Like, yeah. I think that's really cool, especially if we want to have a diverse workforce where people can go, they can lean into their strength, everyone feels welcome, and we celebrate that you like one thing, that is your strength, and that is your strength, and we're not all the same. Correct. So I love that you have that power, and you're using it yeah. to make the workplace better for everybody. And I am really curious. So at the end of every podcast, yes. I like to give people something really tangible to walk away with and take action within 24 hours because right. that's the thing if you don't apply what you learned right away it you don't remember it and you probably never will apply it so if someone's listening and most of my listeners are from industry so people right. who want to really embrace diversity or even young people and really embrace them help them thrive help them figure out like what their thing is that they want to strive for what their strength is that they want to lean into what can they do to just get started so I would say that, that look, that's a great question. So my, my simple ask would be the next 24 hours to say to yourself, in the past two weeks, 
when have I truly played to my strengths? When is that? When have I been really jazzed and excited about my work? And how can I do more of that going forward? So it's really recognizing it in yourself and being that role model. Absolutely correct. I love that. So because that, that's what it, it, you do it on yourself, and mm-hmm. then other people are going to see that, and they're going to follow. Absolutely, exactly. Yeah, and then and then if you and and being that role model, and then asking two of your colleagues the same question. So kind of multiplier, ask two colleagues, and then it'll be a multiplier effect of more people thinking this way. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on, Don. This was a pleasure. So much insight, so much wisdom. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be here today. There is a lot happening at Ambition Theory right now. If you want to stay in the loop, make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out every Sunday, and it's a combination of motivation and strategy to help you and your company get ahead. When you sign up, you'll also get a free phone wallpaper that is a reminder to get out of your comfort zone because that is where the magic happens. Go to ambitiontheory.ca forward slash subscribe to sign up. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity and inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much.